Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Today, we're going to talk about evictions. Evictions happen when renters are unable to pay their rent or they violate their lease. And for the past year, the courts have been closed and renters have had extra protections from the CDC against eviction if they were behind on their rent. However, these protections expire next week. So we sat down with Erin O'Hare at Charlottesville Tomorrow to talk about what this means for already very housing cost burdened city. And in the second half of the show, we're going to take a look at what it's like to try and get around the city on foot, bicycle, or with a mobility challenge. So today I'm joined by Erin O'Hare at Charlottesville Tomorrow, and you're here to give us some important updates on local housing and development. But before we jump into the stories, you've recently developed a really helpful resource that defines a bunch of commonly used but often misunderstood terms that are related to policy solutions in the realm of equity. Can you pick one or two of the terms in the equity glossary and tell us what it means and what you learned about it? Sure. So let's talk about two terms that are often conflated, which are affordable housing and low-income housing. And explaining the difference between the two is actually what inspired the equity glossary. So affordable housing refers to the affordability of people to live in a certain area. And Charlottesville's area median income is very high. So that's what affordable housing is technically. And then I think what people often mean when they're talking about affordable housing is low-income housing. And again, conflated with affordable housing, with public housing. Low-income housing is related to both of those, but it refers specifically to housing that is affordable to people at the low, very low, and extremely low-income thresholds. And those income levels are defined by HUD's guidelines, so the Office of Housing and Urban Development, Government Office, And income levels are adjusted for family size, and um, those are also determined by area median income, and they're subject to adjustments for areas with particularly high or low incomes. Just low income in general is 80% of the median family income for the area. Very low income is 50%, and extremely low income is 30%. But in Charlottesville's metro area, which includes the city, Albemarle County, Green, Fluvanna, and Nelson counties, the area median income for a family of four is $93,900 a year. So for a family of four, right, low income would mean that they're bringing in $74,950 a year. Very low income is $46,850 a year. Now that's for a family of four, again, an extremely low income is $28,100 a year. So Those are the amounts that are used by HUD and local housing authorities in the city and the county to determine, among other things, whether or not an individual or family are eligible for housing assistance programs. And usually low income, like conversationally, refers to all three levels of income mentioned above, but pretty big difference between low income, quote unquote, and extremely low income. And another thing that's important to note in in this You know, we have this area median income for a family of four of $93,900 a year, and yet 20% of the city's residents live at the federal poverty level or below. So that tells you about the massive income gap we have in our area. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like one of my takeaways from that distinction is that, you know, there might be a lot of quote unquote affordable housing in the city that's actually still pretty expensive. Yes, 
So can you just tell us a little bit more about the equity glossary? Like, how should people use it? Well, it's on um, seavilletomorrow.org. I worked on this with my colleague, Charlotte Woods. And, you know, we know that these conversations about equity can be really challenging, you know, in part because of the vocabulary involved, right? Like we just heard low income conversationally means something different technically, legally. So we just want to promote better understanding of the terms and the concepts so that we can all have more meaningful, clear and accurate conversations about equity in our community. And we're trying to put it at the beginning of every article that deals with equity. It's a glossary. So, you know, it's got a page. We're going to update it when we have new terms. We've started off with housing because that's such a big part of the conversation right now and an important part of the conversation. And so, yeah, you know, if there's a term, if you're reading a story and you're like, I don't know what this means, you can go to the equity glossary and it's all in alphabetical order. So you can hopefully find the term there. And if a term or a concept is not defined, you can email me at eohair at seaviltomorrow.org. My email is on the website on the Equity Glossary page. But yeah, we're happy to add to it as people need. All right. So let's talk about some of your recent stories. So renters are a huge part of the housing story here in Charlottesville. And there's a big change coming for a lot of renters across the country as the CDC's temporary protections from evictions during COVID-19 will expire next week. So I want to start with the absolute basics on this one. What is an eviction? Sure. Um, And I also want to note that more than half of the city's residents are renters. We're not talking like 51 percent. You know, it's like it's it's higher than that. So most of the people who live in the city rent. So eviction is removal of a tenant from a rental property. What are some of the main reasons that people get an eviction notice? Well, there's a lot of reasons. So I think number one, and that's what we're seeing with the eviction moratorium, is um, people lose their jobs. They can't afford to pay their rent. But every lease is different. And so, I get, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you violate anything in the lease, a landlord could evict you. But, you know, if you go to court, you could see whether or not you have a case to say like, oh, it's kind of ridiculous that you told me I can't put a pumpkin in my trash. And that's why you're evicting me, which is a condition I've had in a lease before. Not my current place. <laughs> but, you know, it just... Um, I mean, it could be like noise. It could be not taking care of the property. It could be, you know, your lease says no pets and you have a bunch of animals. There's a whole slew of reasons. So what do you think people need to know about how this process works? Really good question because a lot of tenants don't know their rights. First, tenants should know that receiving an eviction notice does not mean that they need to leave immediately. There are many legal steps and thus some time between receiving an eviction notice and when a sheriff shows up to actually evict a tenant from the residence per a court order. So a lawyer can explain those steps from hearings to trials and payment plans. Tenants have rights throughout the entire process. So Legal Aid Justice Center and the Charlottesville chapter of the Democratic Socialists for America have education resources ready for anyone facing eviction to let tenants know about their rights. And of course, there are many more than that. It's pretty detailed. Can you talk about some of the long-term repercussions of being evicted? There are so many. So an eviction judgment can set off like an avalanche of life events. Folks who are experts in this from LAJC and the DSA and folks that I know personally have told me that an eviction is a major life-changing event. So first, there's the immediate repercussions of having to move. Moving's expensive. And if someone is being evicted for not being able to pay their rent, it's not likely that they'll be able to afford to start a lease on a new place, like first and last month's rent, security deposit, et cetera, which can lead to homelessness. 
Someone might have to move further from their job, which means a longer commute, or they might have to move further from a grocery store, which can lead to food insecurity because, you know, not everyone has a car. And we have public transportation here, but, you know, it could be better, especially for folks who have disabilities and who can't access those those systems easily. Kids might have to change schools. It can affect someone's credit, which can also make it more difficult for someone to find a new place to live. There are a lot of landlords who won't rent to someone with a prior eviction. It often is really devastating for people. So why was there a national eviction moratorium to begin with? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's the big change coming is that it's ending. Yes. And it turns out that this is a lot more complicated than most people know. Than I knew, certainly. And so I talked to Victoria Horick of Legal Aid Justice Center about this. She's the fair housing law expert in Virginia. So, you know, the national eviction moratorium was due to COVID-19. A lot of folks lost their jobs or, you know, they lost heads of household. So many people have died. So, you know, the people who are supporting a family can no longer do that because they're not on this plane anymore. The interesting thing is that there's never really been a blanket eviction moratorium during the pandemic. Victoria Hark told me. So, you know, the Supreme Court of Virginia closed courts due to COVID-19 in the spring 2020. So that basically stopped eviction hearings and thus trials and evictions because the eviction is when the sheriff shows up to do the court ordered part. So after courts reopened, there's just never been a complete eviction moratorium that protected all tenants. It's been for tenants who are unable to pay their rent. But as Victoria told me, there have been um, a bunch of patchwork tenant protections that have kept many tenants in their homes. But as she said, large cracks have existed in the COVID-related tenant protections. And a tenant could have fallen through one or more of those cracks and still been evicted for pandemic-related reasons. And she sent me a very long email with some examples that I will not read in its entirety. But basically... One of the things that really stuck out to me was that the CDC moratorium, which is the one that expires on the 31st, only prevents a landlord from getting the sheriff to lock a tenant out. It doesn't prevent the landlord from getting a court eviction judgment. And the court eviction judgment on your record is one of the things that just sticks with you forever. And it also only applies to non-payment of rent. So, so if and you put a pumpkin in your trash, you put a pumpkin you in your trash, you could still be evicted. Yeah. Or if you have a noise violation or any of those things we talked about. So, yeah, it's so much more complex. And, you know, like everything, right, there are good landlords and there are not so good landlords. And some might be looking very deeply into this. And that's why it's important to, you know, if someone is being evicted, that they they look into those resources offered by the DSA and LAJC. So you say in your article that our community faced an eviction crisis even before COVID-19, before the moratorium on evictions. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What are some of the signs of that crisis? Sure. So we don't have post-pandemic, quote unquote, data because we're still in a pandemic. And these numbers I've, I've seen a few times and they they were most recently put out in the Legal Aid Justice Center statement on the city council funding for the eviction prevention pilot program. In Charlottesville alone, in 2019, 647 eviction actions were heard. So that means that there were 647 like eviction cases in court. And that's only the ones that were heard. So the courts don't keep track of like eviction notices, just the the court hearings. So it's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. So do you know how many people are currently facing eviction at the end of the month? No, I don't. I mean, my guess, based on what I've heard, is that courts are going to be pretty overwhelmed the first week of August with um, 
with eviction filings. Another thing that came up in your article was that city council voted to fund a new right-to-counsel program for eviction hearings. Can you talk about that and how people can access that resource? Sure. So on Monday, city council voted to fund an eviction prevention pilot program through the Legal Aid Justice Center, which is actually different from right-to-counsel. Sorry. It's (laughs) okay. Thank you for the correction. Well, Thanks to City Council and the Legal Aid Justice Center for correcting me, because that's what I thought it was, too. But they're two very different things. City Council, all five counselors voted yes to allocate $300,000 from the city's American Recovery Act funds for this. And so basically, it is money to help fund eviction assistance. So Brenda Castaneda of Legal Aid Justice Center told me that their plan right now is to hire an attorney to work on these cases, but they're also going to hire like a community organizer who would help with the education aspect of it because not every eviction proceeding needs a lawyer. So it's, it's a program, right? It's really different from right to counsel because as Mary Bauer, who is chair of the Human Rights Commission, she said, and I quote, We have not adopted a right to counsel. We have allocated some money to allow some percentage of tenants to have lawyers in eviction proceedings that wouldn't have had them previously. And that's great, but it's not the same thing as right to counsel for two reasons, she told me. So one is that like $300,000 is not nearly enough to ensure that every person who needs counsel or assistance in an eviction proceeding can receive it. That would be a lot of money, right? And it would be a guarantee. And the other thing is that there's no right codified in a law that says people have the right to a lawyer in an eviction proceeding. So right to counsel would take at the very, very least an ordinance passed by the city. But it would more than likely take new legislation at the state level, federal level. So that's something that folks are going to continue advocating for. Very different things. But as you know, everyone has said, it's a start, you know. And hopefully it will help some people in the coming weeks and months. So if you're facing an eviction or you know someone who is and you go to the Legal Aid Justice Center, at the very least, you'll be able to meet with somebody who can help you find, like, figure out what your next steps are. And you might be able to get a free, free legal counsel. Maybe, depending on your on your case. But, um, yeah, it's possible. That's what they're hoping. They don't know when this will start quite yet, but Legal Aid Justice Center and the Charlottesville chapter of the DSA, they already have like education resources ready to go. They've been flyering. They've been knocking on doors. Like they see who's on the docket for eviction proceedings and they will go to that person and say like, hey, here are your rights. So they've already got all of that in place for folks to know. And so if someone's facing eviction and they contact LAJC or the DSA, they will definitely be able to get some information at the very least. And then it'll just build from there, we hope. Okay, so switching gears just a little bit, let's talk about your recent article on housing vouchers. What are housing vouchers and who can use them? Basically, and this is also in the equity glossary, basically a housing voucher is, it's a program that allows very low and extremely low income. So 30% of AMI or lower. Yes, generally. Those folks to apply for assistance with rent. And it's similar to public housing in that it's federal assistance, but it allows you choice in where you live. So if you get a housing voucher, it's basically like, okay, the government's going to pay this percentage of your rent. And generally, and it, it varies a little bit program to program, but generally, you know, a tenant is not expected to pay more than 30% of their income towards their rent. And then your voucher will cover the rest. Um, And then there are limits on like how much an apartment can be. But of course, there are complications 
There are landlords who don't want to accept housing vouchers. There are new protections that prevent landlords who own five or more units from denying someone because of a voucher, but that means that landlords who, who own one to four units can still do that. And there are other reasons that they deny folks as well. But the Legal Aid Justice Center expert, Victoria Harak, who I talked to, she explained that it's actually, it can be a great thing for landlords because even if their tenant loses their job, the landlord is still going to get that rent. And oftentimes if people do lose their jobs, then, you know, the voucher can help cover until they find something new. So it's actually a really great way for a landlord to get that income. The Legal Aid Justice Center and other housing experts in town are just, you know, hoping to get more landlords in on this to help them understand, too, like how it could be a great thing for them. And they give someone who really needs a place to live a place to live. How do you get a housing voucher if you qualify for one? Yeah. So in the city, it's the Charlottesville Redevelopment Housing Authority. The county runs its own housing program. So if you go to the Albemarle County website, there's information on housing vouchers there. And there are different types of vouchers depending on your situation. So if you're a senior with a disability, you apply for one program. If you don't have any challenges other than income, which is obviously a big challenge, you would be in a different type of program. But yeah, folks can go to their local housing authorities website and see what the, the application process is like. However, you usually have to get on a wait list before you get a voucher. And the wait lists are only open a few days a year. I talked with Philip Holbrook from the county the other day for this story I'm working on, and he explained it as, you know, if the wait list is open all the time, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And then people are on the wait list for years waiting, you know, expecting, worrying. So at least in the county, you know, they want to keep the wait list such that, you know, everyone who's on it gets a voucher within a couple of years. Where do people go for help? If it's only open a couple days yeah. a year and there's all these qualifications, like how do you even know? So the housing authority in Charlottesville and then the program in the county, they do issue like information on when the waitlist is opening and they send it to local press. They send it to um, housing advocacy groups in town. And, you know, they have people who they're in touch with as well. And so it's a public notice that it's opening. And both of those offices will assist people with the application process. You know, if if you don't have an internet connection, you can go to the office. If you're having trouble filling it out online, you know, they have many accommodations, it seems, for for people who need the assistance. Because it can be really intimidating. And often, you know, there's a lot of stigma around this too. But there are resources available, just unfortunately not enough to help everyone who needs it. You also mentioned that discrimination is a really big issue with people who have housing vouchers. What are some resources for renters who think they might be experiencing discrimination because of a housing voucher? Well, it can often be difficult to figure out if you're being discriminated against for a number of these reasons, such as your voucher or your credit score or your race or, you know, your social class, any of that, or your your source of income. And so Legal Aid Justice Center can help tenants figure that out. So, you know, folks can go to Legal Aid Justice Center, say, hey, this is happening. I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm being discriminated against. And an attorney at Legal Aid Justice Center will be able to sit down with someone and say, okay, like, what's the situation? Let's go over this. It seems like this. You might have a case here. And so, yeah, Legal Aid Justice Center is a really great resource. They have housing experts. They've got all kinds of brilliant people with kind hearts over there. So they know their stuff. Erin O'Hare is an equity reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM. 
and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Annie Parnell. She spoke with a few activists and policymakers about what it's like to get around the city as a pedestrian and cyclist. On June 28th, three new street signs appeared along Preston Avenue. Why speed? You're just racing to a stoplight, one of them read. Another, placed underneath the speed limit sign, said, yes, really, 25 is the limit and the law. The third declared, this speed benefits cars, not neighbors. Now, these odd signs were quickly removed by public works, but transit safety has been an issue in Charlottesville for some time now, despite the city's official status as a bike and pedestrian friendly community. Most of the biking Quote, infrastructure is really just paint. That's Andy Orban, a local cycling enthusiast and the main organizer behind Charlottesville's recent walk audit. We caught up about bike safety in Charlottesville and those mysterious street signs. There's a real limit to who can use it. You know, I'm able, you know, male, fairly tall and, and comfortable on my bike, so like I, I stand out. I, I don't feel like biking is really for everyone in, in the city because it's just not safe enough. Can you give me an example or two of a common safety concern that cyclists encounter in Charlottesville? Painted bike lanes next to car parking, that's definitely a huge safety issue. You know, as people open their doors and, and get out, that's right into the bike lane. So that, that's definitely a huge safety issue. The high speed on a bunch of the roads is an issue. So like Preston and Fifth Street Extended, especially Preston's 35 Fifth Street is 45 miles an hour. So those have painted bike lanes, but there's absolutely zero protection. So, you know, cars flying along kind of swerves a little bit, you know, that, that they're in the bike lane right, right there. So there's also the discontinuity of the bike lanes are, are a safety issue too. Like, for example, coming down Preston towards downtown, you cross cross in front of Bodo's and on the way down the hill, McIntyre, there's no bike lane there. Like there's bike lanes all up until you get to that intersection and then down the hill, there's no bike lane. So you're forced to ride in the traffic with people trying to merge to go right, to go up McIntyre. So there's a lot of different barriers to safe biking in town. Do you believe that Charlottesville's road conditions benefit cars, not neighbors? Yes, I, I certainly do. Car use is is primary in the city. Like everything is geared at first priority to how cars are moving, how cars are stored, where where you can access things. Like, you know, looking at the pandemic, Bodo's had their drive-through line and it was all geared towards cars. They didn't have any walk-up or anything like that. I went through it a few times on my bike, but you know, it, it's, it's like everything ends up kind of being built around how to get cars through and, and where to park and, and store cars. Bikers aren't the only ones who have concerns. A sidewalk that's easily passable for one pedestrian might pose a serious barrier to another. And when that's the case, some people are left to get around by going into the street. Jim Herndon is a former ADA coordinator for the city and an advocate for disability rights with the Independence Resource Center. 
He says that specific features of Charlottesville, like sidewalks that are narrow, uneven, or blocked by utility poles, create particular accessibility barriers in the city. It's sidewalks where you might have a quarter to a half an inch or even more between the sections of the sidewalk where a, a wheelchair or someone on crutches or someone with a sight impairment is walking down the street, suddenly they find themselves challenged with a level change or, or they're in a position where the angle of the, of the surface is such that they're having trouble maneuvering. Utility poles are a uniquely expensive problem. Sometimes, the way that they're placed on sidewalks means that certain people just can't pass. When I was with the city, I did some research because we were, we were faced with some utility poles that did not provide the necessary uh, width of access on sidewalks. And I found out from dealing with Dominion Power that uh, a utility pole can range anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 to move. The standards passage for uh, accessible route is 36 inches. Now that can be reduced down to 24 inches for a, a length of no more, no more than two feet. But some of these poles, the way they're positioned, you're hardly given a foot, or maybe a foot and a half to get around them. And you can imagine someone in a wheelchair who is pushing themselves up or down the street they get to a utility pole in the middle of the sidewalk, they're going to have to go out in the street to get past the utility pole. Another barrier to access is Charlottesville's population of rentable e-scooters, which are often parked across sidewalks in ways that make it difficult or impossible for pedestrians to pass. Jim says that parking has improved since a 2019 ordinance instituted a $50 fine for improper placement, but that the problem still persists. Anytime one of these scooters is left in the route, uh, they're, they're endangering someone, someone with a mobility issue or with a sight issue. They could certainly injure themselves because there's always a chance that somebody with a cane or wheelchair would hit those scooters. And, and the problem with that is enforcement. You can imagine, you know, some a UVA student or a young person saying, well, I'm just going to leave this, this scooter here and then go walking off. So how is the city responding to the issue of cycling and pedestrian safety? Amanda Ponce, Charlottesville's cycling and pedestrian coordinator, says that the current safety initiatives aim to improve conditions across the city, including on Preston Avenue. There are a number of different locations that are currently in design or ready for construction, a bike lane and curb ramp improvements along Preston Avenue between 10th Street and Rugby Road, um, as well as some curb ramp improvements for accessibility. There are also a number of federally funded projects that are in various stages of design and scheduled to go under construction in the next three years. And these include a segment of East High Street between Locust Avenue and the Belmont Bridge. So there will be sort of continuous um, bike facilities and wider sidewalks, intersection... So clearly, there's a lot going on. Even right here at home, at the WTJU studio on Ivy Road, we'll be seeing some improvements. On Emmett Street, between Ivy Road and Arlington Boulevard, a streetscape project which will provide bike lanes as well as wider sidewalks. 
Fontaine is another one, Fontaine Avenue from JPA Mori intersection to the city limits. Uh, in that case, there's sidewalk missing from parts of the street, uh, particularly on the, gosh, what direction is that? North side, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, so that will add some sidewalk facilities as well as crossing improvements and bike facilities. And then lastly, at, on Barracks Road from the intersection of Emmett Street to Buckingham Circle, there will be a shared use path that is added as well as intersection improvements at the Barracks Emmett intersection. So what ways are there for people to get involved in making the city more accessible by biking and walking? We always welcome new members to the Bike Ped Advisory Committee. Uh, those meetings, again, are the first Thursdays at 5 p.m. Um, people can also, you know, I know that that can be a commitment for some people. And um, so people can always get involved in public processes for individual projects. Uh, for example, there was just a design public hearing for the Fontaine Avenue um, streetscape project. The, the presentation is online and I believe they're still accepting comments for that project. Um, you know, simple things like reporting issues via the MySeaVille app is an easy way for people to share feedback on issues. You know, a lot of times um, we don't know about an issue and so need the help of people who are on the street walking and riding bikes to, to know that an issue exists. So we, you know, that's a, a great and easy um, way for people to get involved and, you know, simply Emails, phone calls, and social media are also tools um, to, for people to share feedback with city staff and officials. Despite these positives, however, both Andy and Jim believe that there's more work to be done. Having a more intentional look at networks and having ways that people can get through from one area of town to another and looking at where some of these discontinuities are it's one of the biggest things is to have something that once you start going on it, you can feel comfortable that it'll get you to your destination, you know, in a safe way. Um, having protected, uh, physically separated bike lanes, I think would be a huge, uh, improvement to bike safety. Paint is not protection. I'd like to see, uh, a more coordinated effort between the city and people in the community with disabilities, not only on the short term, such as barriers, sidewalk repair, but on the longer term, you know, in maybe developing accessible routes uh, and maybe addressing uh, long-term uh, existing barriers that are still in place. There, there are places in the sidewalk now you know, I mean, I ride by them almost every day where I said, this needs to be fixed, but it's not an easy fix. It's going to take time. It's going to be a lot of uh, engineering thought. You're listening to WTJU Charlottesville. For more information on the Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Committee, check out charlottesville.gov. To report a safety concern on Charlottesville's streets and sidewalks, you can file a service request on the city website or on your phone using the MySeaville app. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. 
Our assistant producers this week are Annie Parnell and Sarah Haworth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. Soundboard.